last eight months, waking up has actually hurt. Cold realization that I'm still here slowly sets in. I was never terribly fond of waking up. I was never one to jump out of bed and greet the day with a smile like Jim was. I used to want to punch him sometimes in the morning. He was so happy. I always used to tell him that only fools greet the day with a smile, that only fools could possibly escape the simple truth, that now isn't simply now. It's a cold reminder. One day later than yesterday, one year later than last year, and that sooner or later, it will come. Hello and welcome to the Lone Acting Nominees Podcast, a show where I'm joined each week by a guest to discuss a movie that only received one Oscar nomination, that being for one of its performances. We'll talk about the performance in question, the movie as a whole, and its place in the Oscar race, among other things. I'm Gordon McNulty, and this week I'm joined by Alexa Effune to discuss Colin Firth's Oscar-nominated performance in the 2009 film, A Single Man. Alexa, good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So uh, tell me a little bit about why you picked this movie out of all of the options that there were. Okay, so, oh man, where do you even begin? I think it's so interesting how Tom Ford made this movie. It's, I won't be too generous, but it's almost perfect. It's pretty close to perfect. And nobody ever talks about it. And then he didn't make another movie for seven years. And... I can't think of any other director off the top of my head that has ever done that. Yeah. Where made something so cinematically triumphant and like just artistically, musically, like... It comes together so well. Yeah. As as a a singular work. Yes. And, but it's also so him. Yeah. And it's so based... You can tell that someone who worked in fashion made this movie. Um, but I just find it so interesting that he, he debuted this film and then he didn't do another film for seven years. And of course, people in the film community talk about it and it was recognized at the time. But after that, it's like, it yeah. doesn't get nearly enough recognition. So um, that's why I chose it. It's also just one of my favorite movies for, well, for those reasons that I just listed. So um, yeah, and I'm just really excited to talk about it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it too. I'd seen it before, I think last year, and then uh, going back to it this time, knowing how things sort of play out, it's just all the more, it really hits you. This movie really mm-hmm. hits you. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. So we are talking about A Single Man from 2009, directed by Tom Ford, written by Tom Ford and David Skears, or Sears, I don't know how that's pronounced, based on the 1964 novel by Christopher Isherwood, starring Colin Firth, Julianne Moore, Matthew Good, Nicholas Holt, uh, Lee Pace shows up for a little bit, Jennifer Goodwin shows up, uh, a model who I don't know how to pronounce his name. You mentioned him when we were talking about it. How do you pronounce yes, his name? Yes, uh, I believe, okay, well, no, I don't want to butcher it, but I, I think it's John Cortajarena. That would make sense. That he's, would... he's Spanish. He, so if I butcher the last name... Yeah. I apologize. And then, uh, uh, do you know whose voice it is on the phone call in the, in the beginning? That's uh, telling him that Jim is dead? Oh, yeah, as, as his cousin. I yeah. don't know who does the voice for that. Do you? It's uh, John Hamm. Really? Yeah. Oh, my like, God. Right as Mad Men is starting to happen. I uh, did not know that. 
Yeah. That actually, now that I'm thinking about it, now that I'm thinking about it, it sounds like John Hamm. I literally just watched this movie yesterday, so it's very fresh in my mind. And I had never thought to look up who did the voice. I kind of just assumed that it was somebody else who was already in the film that just did did the the phone call. But they got got good old John Hamm in there. Damn, that makes it all the better. Yeah. It uh, premiered on September 11th, 2009 at the Venice Film Festival. Played a bunch of festivals. It played at TIFF, played at BFI, AFI Fest, a whole bunch more. Uh, opened limited December 11th in the United States and then opened wide February 5th of 2010. So that is the film we're talking about. And let's just jump right into the, uh, the performance that got nominated. Colin Firth as George Falconer, as this yes. uh, uh, the titular single man. So uh, where do we want to start with this performance? What strikes you right off the bat? What strikes me right off the bat? Well, okay, so I think when I think of Colin Firth, I, maybe this is controversial, but I kind of think of him more as a comedic actor or at least an actor who uh, chooses primarily comedic roles other than this one in King's Speech and probably a few others that I'm not like, Super yeah, there's, aware of. there's a handful in there, but like he, he doesn't get brought up as a very good comedic actor nearly enough because he is a very funny actor. Yeah, he's he in he's in Bridget Jones, he's in all the Kingsman movies, which controversial opinion, but those movies are fun and great. Um, and generally, I just feel like he's always kind of playing the like British lad, but who's also funny kind of role. And so when I saw him in this, I when it started I was a little bit nervous because I have already had that association in my brain of him as a kind of comedic actor because all of the other work that I've seen by him is comedy um or adjacent to comedy and what I find so interesting off the bat immediately is how he's still playing a similar character to the ones he plays in other movies where he's kind of this well put together posh you know um clean cut yes yeah, like, like he's, he's dressed to the man. nines very very yes very in command of his uh of his yes presence. and still keeps that presence of like posh british fancy kind of adult classy man if you will and um he plays it as if it is just who he is yeah yeah he definitely and, fits this role like two yes He's, yes. he's so present. So uh, th- there was one review, I think it was the Roger Ebert review, that says he, he inhabits the role of jo- George Falconer like a well-tailored suit. Yes, like it, that... like it, it's, just, it's just him. He's carrying himself as George, not as Colin Firth. There's no like big aesthetic change from what we're used to no, from Colin no. Firth. But he feels like a completely different man just from the way he inhabits these these spaces he feels very much he fits the time period as well yes 1962 uh uh, la valley i think uh, a school where he teaches he definitely fits right in with the aesthetic they're going for of the time and I, i think that is a not inconsiderable thing to uh to to state about this performance like he this character is very uh cynical Obviously, this is, you know, Mm -hmm. the day that he's about to kill himself later that night. He he is very, very dry and very, uh, you know, uh, not putting up with the the bullshit of the world. And I feel like you need someone like Colin Firth 
with that voice that kind of, you know, brings you in anyway, that like you still want to feel for him. If this was a different actor, maybe, maybe a, someone who, where the cynicism feels more dark, I don't think we would, uh, we would feel nearly as bad for this character without no, someone I like Colin Firth agree. to get you to sympathize. I completely agree. And in a way, the character feels, I don't want to say um, paternal because I don't think that's the right, the exact right word, but you almost want to just like sit down with him and have him read you a bedtime story and like have him tell you that everything's going to be okay because he's constantly being, um, like you said, cynical and uh, quite honestly pretentious and very yeah. like, um, very Tom Ford about the whole thing. It's like, yes. he was this he's very clearly uh, written to be pretentious, but lovable, which I think yes. is also like essence of Tom Ford because when you're bringing this level of sophistication um, from every aspect, like wardrobe, uh, performance, the script, you still have to be able to make the character sympathetic, like likable, yeah, yeah likable, likable. watchable. Yes, you want yes. to you want to have a reason to follow this man throughout this day, because yes, otherwise, exactly. like, what's the point? Like, why are we sticking with this character that we hate that also hates himself? Like, yes. you want to have some sort of in with the audience, and Colin yes, Firth exactly. brings that just by being I, Colin Firth. Exactly, and even. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too much into the other performances because I'm sure it'll come later, but even the other characters, even though they're, um, I don't know if likable is the word, but enjoyable, like Julianne Moore's character, I think that if it was her acting alongside somebody else, this movie would have been almost insufferable because yeah. her character, great as she is, is insufferable. Yes. And, yeah. And oh, yeah. Every, pretty much every other character, like the character of... Um, his husband, the character that his deceased husband, the character of his neighbors, the character of the student that he builds a relationship with. All of these characters are so like in your face, pretentious, cynical um, of, of the time. So like sixties yeah. and great as they all are, if they didn't, if Colin Firth wasn't in this position with who he is as just a man, um, and you like, need him as like a sounding board. You need him, yes. Like without, you need a a reason for these people to like him because yes. Like like we said, if, if he was a more uh, apathetic character, if he was a character that the audience couldn't, you know, get in sync with, why are these characters in sync with him? Why do we care about his relationships with these people? Uh, and because you know, because it's Colin Firth, he's able. Even though this character is depressed. This character is uh, kind of misanthropic at this point. He's jaded. He's very jaded because at this oh, point, yeah. his, his, his partner of 16 years has yeah, died. Yeah, understandably <laughs> jaded. <laughs> oh, yes. Completely justifiably uh, uh, at, at yeah. world internally. Well, which, that's another, that's an important part because like without um, the knowledge of the length and the severity of their relationship, I guess, you would be like, this guy's ridiculous. Um, because yeah. if, 16 if you, years with this guy. Yeah. That, like, yeah, that, yeah that's yeah, a yeah. bit, that is an, a not, that is, that's a lot of time. To, to this is not some guy that he dated for six months and then lost him and is having this whole life crisis over. This was a lifelong relationship. Um, but 
yeah, what, what were we? I, I also want to mention in terms of that jadedness. Uh, so the movie opens, yes, yes. The movie opens with him waking up from a nightmare where he uh, is at the scene of, of Jim's car accident. Yes. He, he kisses his dead body and then wakes up in, in a jolt. And there's narration from, from Firth talking about how uh, he hates waking up in the morning because every time he's woken up since Jim has died, it's a, uh, the, the quote was a, it's a cold realization that I'm still here. And yes. it shows him going about his day, preparing his, his outfit for the day and all this stuff. And as this is all happening, Firth has this narration. And it does something that you don't always get with narration uh, from a character in a movie where usually like it's a very objective, like here is this character's inner monologue. And the book is apparently a very you know stream of consciousness, very internal from this character. Uh, but the narration you can tell that this guy is depressed just from his yes. tone. Like it is a, it is a very subjective uh, uh, representation of this man's inner thoughts. And you need that because that's the point of the character. That is the, the ethos of the character is that he's, he's, uh, he's depressed and doesn't see a reason to keep going, but he still has to. And to have that conveyed in just the, the voice, I think is, is a very interesting choice from him because he could have very easily had that be, you know, very matter of fact, Colin Firth, I'm just going to describe this, but you know, it fits, it fits the character that even internally he is struggling with this cynicism. It, it is well, yeah, yeah, yeah. a front he's putting on. That is him through and through is that he's jaded. And that goes back to the point about uh, this performance making the character likable because if he were, like you said, if he were to do it in like a matter of fact, this is what's going on and everything is this way and this way and there is no emotion to it. The performance of him being jaded and all of the speeches and lectures and conversations that he has throughout the movie, if it wasn't accompanied by the voiceover that, like you said, reflects the fact that he is, this is a genuine place that he's coming from and not something he says to either comfort people or make people think that he is um, maybe not more intelligent, but... Uh, it's not a face he's putting on. That, that is just how he's been living, what he's been living with yes. for the past several months of living alone. Uh, and it's sharp, too, the cynicism. Like, it is not a dulled, like, apathy. It is a cynicism coming from a, pl a place of... And they mention a few points throughout the movie that this is in the height of, like, Cold War... Uh, feelings and there's everyone in this movie is more or less cynical for a different reason uh, yes a lot of it is like cynicism of like oh it, it's an interesting place because for for him it is a place of cynicism that's coming from why carry on any longer but it's not an apathetic why carry on it's a very mm -hmm. pointed why carry on because of this one specific thing I would feel better off not having to like it's it's a very specific place that he's coming from with yes a very singular moment he can point to he knows the the source of his depression he's not uh he's not just suffering with a vague ennui like it is a depression stemming from a singular instance that he just doesn't want to to keep on with mm -hmm. and that's another thing that you like the way he delivers his cynical lines they feel very off the cuff. They feel very like smarmy in a way that you can tell that, and that that's also kind of how he is. Even in the flashback scenes we see with Matthew Good, is that he's still 
a little bit jaded because he's an English professor uh, living in the yes. country. He, he, is, he is a learned man who, who kind of feels himself as, as better than those around him. But, but isn't, the, isn't the change of tone between the flashback scenes and the current scenes so impactful? Yes. Like, oh, you can definitely tell. Like, there's, there's a stark contrast but they make sense as the same cynical man yes pre and post an extremely traumatic life-changing event and i think that that's that's that can be tough to sell to to sell two different sides of the same coin the same uh uh world-weary coin and have them make sense as existing within the same character but then it's interesting because you know you as the audience and he as the character both know the source of his depression, the source of his cynicism, the source of his grief. And yet it still exists before the source exists. And so I think that it's interesting how the beginning, like the beginning of his character is not really explained as much. So you know why in the current time for which most of the movie is based in, why he's feeling this way and why he speaks and acts this way. But then when you go back to the scenes, flashbacks with um, his now deceased husband, you're like, why are you still like this? You have, you have, you got mad at him. You're like, you have everything and you don't know what you're about to lose. You asshole. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, it's heartbreaking. This is a, this yeah. is a very emotional movie. Yeah. Very, very, it, it cuts out a lot of, a lot of things uh, with just all sorts of relationships, all sorts of ethoses and, yeah, yeah, those moments you really do feel like oh he doesn't know how good he has it. Um, there's a moment, but th- that's also not to say that th- this is a one note character by any means. There are definite moments. Uh, there- there's a few moments with Jim uh, where there's one where they're at the beach, lying by the rocks, talking about you know the sort of generational gap between them, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, just how how much they love each other, which I think is very sweet. There's the moment where they meet outside the bar that I really mm-hmm. like uh, where it starts raining and they go back inside. Uh, that, that's very, that's a good scene for the both of them showing a, a younger quote unquote, Colin Firth uh, have, having a, vi- a much more optimistic look at this, this relationship. Um, I mean, I think arguably, or at least my favorite and arguably the most important is the scene that is shown. I don't know exactly where in the movie, but it's supposed to be, the last flashback that the audience gets um, before you understand that um, this is the last time they see each other before he passes away. But when they're both reading and yeah. listening to the, to the record with their dogs and he says something along the lines of like, uh, I don't remember exactly. He says something along the lines of what fiction garbage are you reading? Yeah. And you it's know? breakfast at Tiffany's and yes. like he, he's, he, he even in this relationship is a little bit pretentious sees himself as a little bit better than uh but from a place of love it, that's yeah, a very but, but i also feel like that's his relationship with every single person in the movie though oh yeah oh yeah like with the student that uh flirts with him like with yes like with julianne moore especially they're they're back yes. and forth their friendship as a gay man and the straight woman that is still in love with him after all these years oh my god they have such a (laughs) such a specific back and forth that they have between them like you can tell these people have been 
each other's closest confidants for probably as long as they can remember. Like, yes. And, and when he gets mad at her because she's everything that she says about his relationship with Jim and how he still harbors these feelings for him. And he, he gets genuinely very mad at her completely justifiably. Yeah. justifiably. Yeah. And then, Right away, he's back on the couch with her, like with an arm around her. It's like, yes, you you can tell that he he doesn't harbor ill will towards her just because she's, you know, a, a little bit uh, obsessed. Like they're still the best of friends, and also kind her, of hate each other. Comforts her, comforts her, and takes the blame when she was in the wrong. Yeah, which is such an interesting dichotomy between the other other conversations and things they talk about throughout the rest of that scene when they're having dinner because you clearly sense that to an extent um through both his tone and then also kind of just the things that he says to her that he thinks she's childish or maybe just and she is also oh no she's incredibly childish Oh, like by far, this is one of the most justified things in this movie that he does. Oh, yeah, he, but, yeah, he has our number. But, but it's so interesting that he respects her, loves her, cares for her, forgives her when she says truly like awful things and still looks down on her because he thinks in a way that he's... Uh, more true to himself than she's true to herself um, that that he's in a way smarter than her that he's more mature than her all of which uh, I would argue that are true but yeah he think he shows and displays both of them at the same time and it just makes for such an interesting relationship for these two characters yeah and also worth noting that that scene that they had like their big scene together where they, he goes over to her house and gets drunk and everything, is comes just like a few minutes after he's right about to kill himself. Like, yes. he gets interrupted from trying to go through with it by the phone call saying, hey, weren't we going to come over and get drunk tonight? And okay, so, well, here's an interesting question. Do you think that... Because I've always wondered this. I've seen this movie a few times and I still don't quite know if it's true or what is the truth, rather than not if it's true. Um... Do you think that he had the intention to kill himself before dinner? Or do you think that he was planning out how he's going to kill himself with the intention still to go to dinner? Because the way that I've always interpreted it is he is like, because this, this is a man who preps out everything. He preps out everything before he's going to work yeah. in which he intends to kill himself when he gets home. And the way that I've always seen it is that he is practicing and setting up the way that he wants to kill himself once he gets home. But I've always thought that he had full intention to go to dinner with her before killing himself. That would make sense. I mean, he does go and get the drink anyway, but it feels like in that moment, it's a little bit impulsive of like, what if I just do it now? Like, yes, like I, I could, like what, what's, what's stopping me? And then the phone yes. call ends up being like, well, I can't make that choice now. I'll just make it later. Uh, I mean, I guess what's stopping him is this friendship that in a way, although not as emotionally impactful, clearly has a very large degree of significance in his life. Um, did you ever hear about, this is a tiny bit off topic, but not, not exactly. Did you ever hear about the controversy um, of the poster release for this yeah, movie? Yeah, there, there's actually a lot of controversy around the, the whole marketing of it, not just the poster, but the trailers. 
uh, I never really the, the, the trailer stuff uh, it's all documented on the Wikipedia it's kind of bizarre how it all went down but yeah the the first poster was is the, it's the two of them like lying on the ground next to each other right yes yeah and I I just I understand especially because it was 2009 2010 like I understand the controversy but I think in the context of the movie it makes quite a lot of sense and I don't there was a whole thing about the fact that uh Weinstein company which that's a whole other story but yeah was trying to like de-gay the movie and then I'm I might be mistaken about this maybe I shouldn't talk without confirming but if I'm not mistaken I think that Tom Ford came out and said like I chose the poster for this movie so and uh, uh- at least according to the Wikipedia, uh, the, the first poster is the two of them. Uh, Tom uh, F- Ford, exp- here, I'll just read directly from the Wikipedia. Perfect. Uh, at least according to Julianne Moore, Tom Ford expressed concern that the original poster made the f- film appear to be a romantic comedy and he ordered the poster be changed. Mm. However, he doesn't see the film in terms of gay or straight. Uh, his quote is, I don't think the movie's been de-gayed. I have to say that we live in a society that's pretty weird. For example... You can have full frontal male nudity on HBO, yet in cinema, you can't have naked male buttocks. You can't have men kissing each other without it being considered adult content. So in order to cut a trailer that can go into broad distribution in theaters, certain things had to be edited out. But it wasn't an intentional attempt to remove the gayness of the movie. Uh, And then Colin Firth said that uh, the marketing is deceptive. I don't think they should do that because there's an intentional... No, sorry. uh, Lost my place. I don't think they should do that because there's nothing to sanitize. It's a beautiful story of love between two men, and I see no point in hiding that. People should see it for what it is. And a lot of that comes from the the controversy of the trailer. In in the original trailer, it has much more, not explicit, explicit, but like it has scenes from the movie. But then in the, uh, the recut trailer that they put out pretty soon after, it cuts out a kiss between George and Jim, a, uh, a scene of George meeting Carlos outside the liquor store, uh, George and Kenny running nude into the ocean, and George staring into a male student's eyes. But it keeps the kiss between George and Charlie and the scene uh, of George staring into the female student's eyes. So okay. when, yeah, when it's those parts specifically that are kept versus what's cut, that feels a lot more like it's actually yes. gaying it. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And I ha- I like had heard about the trailer, but I had never seen either of the trailers. I mean, when I when this movie came out, I was like 10 or 11. So, um, but yeah, so interesting because even though this is very clearly a queer cinema movie and it is made to represent the grief of a man after uh, his relationship with another man um, ended by one of them dying, but also just a movie about like simply about friendship and about building bonds with people outside of the realm of sexuality although sexuality is the base and so he has this really strong bond with julianne moore's character with charlie because um they they had once uh been in a relationship or at least it's implied that they have had sex and like intended to maybe be in a relationship Um, not even implied like he says they slept together a few times when he was younger and then that's the thing uh, when uh, Matthew Good is like, I never slept with girls. That was never a thing that I did when I was younger. And that's when Colin yes. Prince says, oh, such a, a, a change in generations between us, basically. Like, yes, yes. The expectations and on different uh, uh, age sets. 
But isn't that, isn't that line so interesting? Because when you think about it in terms of their relationship, it makes sense. And you're like, yeah, smart line. And then later in on, in the movie, when he's talking to the, um, I always forget what the uh, character's uh, name Nicholas is, the Holt. student. He's a Kenny. Kenny, yeah. Kenny. When he's talking to Kenny, and Kenny, well, he asks Kenny if he's slept with um, his friend that he's always in class with. And again, I forgot her name, but... Um, I I, it's like Lois or something. Yeah, something it is like Lois. That. You're right. It is Lois. Um, he asks if he's slept with Lois before. And he goes, yeah, like I have oh, once. Yeah. And... And he's like, oh, well, why only once? And he's like, I didn't say just one time. I said once. And I really like that line. I really like that. So interesting because when, when it happened, when the conversation happens between, um, uh, between George and between uh, Jim, you think that it's so like culturally relevant and in a way deep for lack of a better word, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, but when this happens, you're like, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed because the kids, the, the kids of these days, you know what I mean? The college students, they still experience the same thing with their sexuality that they sleep with women in the same yeah. way that George does and has this relationship built with, it's very, very much uh, Kenny's character reflects a younger version of George's character and Charlie's character. Yeah. Him and, Which, yeah. Kenny and Lois. Which is why it's so nice having those moments at the end where Kenny has, you know, asked a secretary for George's address at the beginning of the school day. They talk a little bit after class. I want to go back to that class scene in just a second. But, yeah. And then later on, he, he runs into him at a bar and they connect. They just talk a little bit about, you know, life and the, the idea of being alone, how we're all kind of, like we're born alone, we die alone, and all throughout we are just ourselves we can only know our own experience of things and that's just how all of life is and what do these relationships that we forge actually mean for us and for how we experience things like everything that we experience is through our own personal lens of ideology and in these moments you like george is finally for the first time like actually perking up and having a genuine connection with this kid and like there's there's something between them and they end up going swimming and uh he takes them back to his house and spoiler alert for those of you who haven't seen the movie which if you haven't pause it this episode go watch the movie yeah. but uh <laughs> we've already spoiled so much <laughs> yes but but at the end there maybe something is going to happen who's to say but uh george ends up having a heart attack and dying and that's the the final like the, the final moment that he has after this terrible day is one last genuine connection with someone who sees the world in the same way that he does, but with a more optimistic spin on things. Like that's the difference between the two of them is that they both have very similar ideologies, but Kenny's an optimist. And it, it's like a moment of, okay, maybe the world isn't as bad as I've been feeling like. Maybe there is hope for the next generation. And it's a very, like, it's a sad ending, but I feel like it's an optimistic sad ending because he got those final hours with Kenny. It's throughout this day where he fully has the intention to kill himself. He's not doubting himself for a second. There's never a moment of, um, besides the very, very end when he's talking to Kenny, there's never a moment where he begins to hesitate. And yet... <laughs> 
the entire day goes well nonetheless yeah. he has when he finally gives up the veil of grief which he's understandably been living under he has a fan, like he has a fantastic and meaningful day he is very very nice to everybody he goes out of his way to be kind and compliment he, there's so many scenes where at the beginning of the day he sees his housekeeper and you know you can kind of tell between the very short interaction they have that she's not used to being treated super nicely by him not to say that i think that he was yeah. like an asshole towards her but you know he says you're so wonderful and i love you and gives her a kiss on the cheek and the the next scene is just her like what the fuck and yeah. then and then he goes to school and the secretary is like the student asked for your address and i gave it to him and for a minute you think he's going to be upset but he just stares at her and he's like you're so beautiful so fresh you smell so good and then throughout the entire day just has all these really meaningful optimistic and just uplifting interactions he has a great class um the students are seem to be very into it and react well he builds this bond with kenny kenny thinks his lesson is great uh he has a good dinner with his friend despite the fact that she's kind of a bitch to him but they still they reflect over the times that they've had together and they talk about different options for the possibilities of their future and irrational some of them may be you still feel really fulfilled by their dinner you feel like you got a you got a good solid look into a good dinner between two friends who have been friends for a long time and by the end of it you're kind of like something needs to happen because this guy can't kill himself like he's on a roll and yeah. that's why Kenny's character is so significant because he is like the throughout this entire day George is on a boat sailing pretty smoothly throughout it and you know that even though everything is going well at the end of it it's going to sink however when Kenny comes into the movie he starts to steer the, like George starts to steer the ship a different direction yeah because he's finally he's finally seeing um what the audience has been seeing the entire time of like this guy isn't as terrible and as pessimistic and as just Debbie Downer as he can be but he doesn't see it in himself until the very end with these interactions with Kenny and he can see a bit of himself reflected in Kenny's character because like you said Kenny is much more optimistic he's younger he's more enthusiastic about life he hasn't been so jaded by the the tragedies and the grief and the um the misfortune the of things yeah yeah exactly and so that scene towards the very end is just so <laughs> tragic yeah. because you're like god damn it we were so close we nearly had it guys we nearly had it that's yeah, the dramatic irony of uh uh finally finally now that he has a reason to live He's, uh, he the, has world, to die. the world has a different plan for him there, there's yeah. a line that i think uh carlos the the hustler outside the the liquor yes. has for him uh where where george says that he's just you know getting over a, a lost love and carlos says something like uh, uh uh my mother always said that like lovers are like buses you miss mm -hmm. one wait around long enough another one will will sh show up anyway and it feels like that's something that just george needs to take to heart like yes it is devastating that this man that he's spent the last more than a decade and a half with is gone 
but it doesn't have to be the end of the world for him. And, but it's completely justifiable why it is too. Like, not not to say that he's in the wrong for being depressed about losing this man, uh, but it, just the, the the connection he makes with Kenny shows that he's not completely unreceptive to that potential. It just comes a little bit too late. And I mean, but that's that's what I'm saying. It's so frustrating because his interaction that he has with Kenny is not the only one that proves that he still has like more to live for. Listen, if this was a movie where his lover of 16 years is dead and you know he's dead and he goes throughout the entire day being like, everything sucks and everyone's terrible and yada, yada, yada. And he has just the worst day ever. At the end of it, you're going to be like, all right, man, I don't know. Like, I don't think you should kill yourself, but I'm not going to advocate for you because this is, I don't see the point in this, but seeing all the small but like also big interactions that he has with his friends with his coworkers, with his neighbors when he's driving past the kid and finally because you know in the scene in the flashback scene with his uh with jim um jim says something along the lines of oh that's stupid the neighbor's stupid little brat or something like that yeah and the dog can, peed on yeah you can kind of tell that the two of them have this like distaste for this kid and then when he's driving past on uh, the way to work and he plays like finger guns with him and you're like, you are capable of building these meaningful relationships with other people in a not romantic sense. You don't need, you don't need to have a partner. You don't need to have a boyfriend or a lover or like uh, someone to spend all your time with in order to fill up your day with positive interactions. Yeah. I think that that's a really smart way to display the character because at the end of the day like not every person experiences depression in the same way and to have him you know not go about the like the worst day possible and the worst like most stereotypical like oh well his circumstances are so depressing so it makes sense why he has depression like no he's going through a generally pretty positive day uh it's worth noting by the way that in the book He's. I don't think there's a gun at all. He's not intending to kill himself. I think it's just okay. we're following a day uh, almost entirely through internal monologue, minimal flashback. Uh, and I, I read a review that sort of criticizes that, but also points out how you you kind of need to have that set up in the beginning for this to be an effective film. And so I, I, I don't criticize that decision in terms of you know, you still need the, a reason to be following this guy on this particular day. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, like this is at the end of the day, a story about how this one man handles his depression. And I, I think that's a very effectively layered way of doing that. Uh, and one scene, okay, I, I want to go back to that classroom scene now. Yes. Uh, that I think perfectly displays that is he's teaching I don't remember the name of the book, but it's an Aldous Huxley book. Yes. And he starts out the lecture pretty normally, talking about the the contents of the chapter they had read. And one student, you know, raises his hand and is like, oh, Huxley says this thing about, you know, needing a reason for whatever. Uh, Does that mean Hitler was right in his, uh, you know, eradication of the Jews? Which also, what a a dumb, who invited this kid to the class? That is just such a poor interpretation. But anyway, that, yeah. sorry, it feels like one of those things where like a, a student is trying to like purposefully 
read into something and and cause a scene but completely uh, the totally wrong interpretation of the text yes. but yes and, yeah and then uh, uh george you know takes that and runs with it and is like well no that's not what he's saying here because in effect the nazis had a reason for their hatred of the jews but that was a false reason and that reason was fear and then mm-hmm. he goes on a whole spiel about how fear of minorities is indoctrin like is a thing that is indoctrinated and just because you're a, a mi- like being blonde is a minority people with freckles are a ma- minority it's just a matter of can people work that minority into a fear among you know impressionable people and he goes on this whole rant about it he, he basically ditches the text and just starts talking about fear and it's a very impassioned speech like it, it's you ever have like a teacher go off on some completely unrelated tangent but you can tell it's something they're very passionate about yeah and it feels like because we know that this is a man who is not going to be alive 24 hours from now and then, and he knows that but no no one else in this room does it feels like he's like you know what one last moment that i have to teach these kids something meaningful i'm just gonna you know say fuck it i'm gonna go on this big very boisterous speech and uh, like that that's something that totally tracks with everything we know about this character and then he gets to a certain point and he he like he realizes and we realize that this is him channeling his own fear of being an invisible minority and yes uh his his uh the class ends he he looks up at the clock and realizes class is over and almost instantaneously he like loses all of his steam and the the speech just sort of like tapers off and he is is like you know what class dismissed whatever uh and like that feels like a a very realistic representation of his character's depression he has this big burst of energy about something he's passionate about and even then that doesn't last all that long there's something he talks about in like the closing narration where every once in a while He'll have a moment of pure clarity where like uh, finally all of the noise going on is gone and he can feel instead of think. And these moments are very fleeting when they happen. They don't last forever. But those moments when he thinks back on them are what, you know, lets him keep going on. And it feels like that's one of those moments where he has a moment where he's like, oh, I have a chance to really teach these kids something important about the world. And then class ends and he reorients himself and realizes none of these kids are listening to me Mm -hmm. this is not going to impress upon any of them and it is you know why am i even doing this it's just another moment where he's he's back to that depressive state and it feels very real in the moment it feels very it's a very well delivered speech because you're getting so many different layers of george like it's not just this is a scene to show that he's a good teacher. It's a scene to show he's a good teacher with very strong opinions about the world. And even then he's still depressed and he's still jaded, but he's not angry in the, the classical sense of it. it. It's a very, like that scene really unlocks so much about him. And that's all on Firth to be able to deliver that in those moments. I, 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 wrote, I noted that scene specifically of like, this if this wasn't his clip for the oscars they kind of fucked up because that clip is perfect for him for that well you know i I was watching i i looked up the presentation and i gotta say oscars bad as they are today man this is so awkward from back in 2009 they don't even have clips it's just like oh i think that's 
the YouTube, uh, the Oscar oh, YouTube, YouTube page. It's just writes things. Uh, there's someone on Twitter. Well, it's just yeah. There's like they get them. everyone. They got all their co-stars on the stage. Oh, this is one of those years. Oh yeah. It was so awkward. So Julianne Moore is just on stage being like, Colin Firth and I met three days before filming. Anyway, I think he was great. And you're like, okay, I guess. But I I understand what you're saying with this is like the pivotal or not I mean not the pivotal but like the defining moment of his character. Um, and I, you know, it's so interesting because throughout the rest of the movie, you believe what he's saying, but to an extent, and you don't know if he believes what he's saying, even um, when he's talking to, no, not even really when he's talking to Julianne Moore's character. I think it's more so at the beginning before we start to see like his true colors when he's teaching, but like the scene the with Lee Pace, where they're like yes. walking by the yeah, tennis yeah, courts yeah. and talking about the, yes. the bomb shelter and everything. Yes, and it all just feels like he doesn't, A, he doesn't care, really, and B, he doesn't have a strong belief in what he's saying. And I guess, actually, I, I stick by my original statement. Throughout the rest of the movie, I still feel this way slightly. Um, with things that he says either about his relationship or about um, Charlie's relationship with him or with her ex-husband to Kenny. Any of the other situations, there's a slight twinge for me at least of like, I don't know that you believe what you're saying and as in his character. Whereas he becomes so impassioned and like determined to get this information across when he's teaching which maybe this is just because this is his job and this is what he's good at and what he's used to. And it's more significant than a conversation because a conversation, you can go back on your words and you can always say, um, I, I was emotional in the moment. I didn't mean what I said. And when you're teaching, it's kind of like you are supposed to be the expert or the, at least the most knowledgeable person in the room on this topic. And when he goes on the rant about minorities, well, maybe rant is not the right word, but when he goes on the, the tangent the, the about speech, minorities, yeah. the speech, yeah. It's still so jaded yes. and yeah. pretentious, but it comes from a place of um, wanting things to be better or to be different versus every other tangent he goes on with everyone else is kind of a uh, self-deprecating isn't the word. Just like um, accepting of the state of the world. Like uh, there's nothing yes. I can do to change it. That's, this is just how things are. Doesn't yes. suck. Yes. Uh, and the, really just, I know, fuck, that's it. And yeah. there's no other, there's no other like suggestions brought forth or anything even implied about uh, what could be done to change the things that he's complaining about in his own state, other people's states. Whereas in this scene, you feel that for a minute, like he has this moment of clarity and this moment of certainty and like assuredness in himself to tell all these kids confidently, this is how things are, but you are the ones that can change this. Yeah. And you are the ones that can make this better. Exactly, and exactly. It's so he depressing. has a place to make a change and yes. not paying attention. For the most part. Kenny yes. is. 
the other gay, is, yeah. the other gay kid that they keep cutting back to to be like hey there's a, there's there's other invisible there's minorities other in this room that nobody's talking about but yeah well, pretty much you know, everyone else plenty, is. they had plenty of jews and plenty of blondes and plenty of freckled faced people but they you know it's yeah. it's college they weren't all that they weren't all that interested but um yeah the the, the ending of that scene is quite depressing yeah uh, anything about, else about the performance? Uh, the 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 scene where he gets the call, the call from uh, uncredited John. Mm. Uh, well, it opens with, with him uh, because he, he picks up the phone and is like, "Oh, I've been waiting to hear from you from all this time. How are you doing?" And then mm-hmm. he, he ends up getting told, "Hey, uh, Jim was in a car accident. He he didn't survive. There's going to be a funeral in two days, but it's family only." Like. It's, you can tell the, the way that it's all phrased is like they they don't want you there uh john yes. ham does john ham is like they don't even want me to be calling you right now to letting to let you know that this is happening but i feel like you are owed this uh, yes and that, that's that's sweet but throughout this scene uh it's very good sad acting from firth without it being so completely melodramatic and finally once he uh the call ends uh he does something that i you don't often see in movies where there's a lot of tears uh but it's completely silent and Mm -hmm. almost completely still too like he's just slumped over in his chair but bawling but completely silently and then uh I, i really liked that moment i thought that was a really smart way to play that and then later like immediately after that he runs out in the rain and runs to Charlie's house and like collapses in her arms. And, but that is played silent. Like they cut out all the audio of the scene. They just have the music going. And so that kind of to similar effect has this same uh, silence to it. And that, that part is more of a filmmaking decision than an acting decision. But I really like the way he plays the, the larger moments of sadness in uh beyond just the stoic depression that he has i I thought that was those moments really made me feel for him in uh yeah the way that firth specifically chose to play them yeah i agree and it's uh if it was this whole dramatic uh noise filled scene it wouldn't be true to the character the entirety of his presence his house his clothing, his lifestyle is very just like clean. There is no, there is no, there is no messiness. There is no lack of control. There is no inability to contain himself. And so I, I also appreciate that this scene is at the very beginning of the movie because I, I think that they could have easily, it was all, all the flashbacks are told in a certain, like, I don't think there's any degree of progression to them. I think yeah, they're it's all out like, of order. They're told randomly. Yeah. Um, and they could have easily put this in the middle of the movie, but to set it up with this as the very first, well, the second scene technically, but the very first scene where we're being like introduced to characters really sets a precedent for the rest of the movie as a, like a solid base understanding of who this character is and how Colin Firth is going to play him. Because 
you understand from the way that he breaks down with this tragic, terrible, horrifying news that his husband has died in a car accident. And on top of that, the fact that his family, presumably his homophobic family, doesn't want him at the funeral. And on top of all of that, I mean, that's shit enough. Like, damn, terrible day. On top of all of that, the, with his two beloved dogs have died. Yes. And to be told all of these things in a span of three minutes, if that, and to be able to maintain that level of together, like put togetherness. Yeah. And like you said, mannered, like, you it's just intense. That it's scene, intense. It's a very intense moment. The whole thing. It just says, yeah. You understand his entire character from that one scene alone. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. That. It, th- that also would have been a very good uh, acting clip scene. Even though it's not, it's minimal dialogue from him. It's very much just like, oh, yes, okay, yes, I understand. I like see. It, yes. <laughs> yeah. very, very minimal dialogue from him. It's all John Hamm over the phone, but it's. It's perfect. It's perfect acting. Like that is, I don't know wh- how better to put it other than he knows exactly how to play this scene and he nails it down to the, to the minutia of the body language. Yes. Yes. It's great. Uh, anything else? Or do we want to move on and talk about the rest of the movie? There's still a whole lot more to talk about. I know. Damn, it's lots unpack. Yeah, I guess we should, we should get it moving. Yeah. Let's have another drink. Mm, I donh, don't please, think so. Please, no, no, I have please, to go. Come and walk me out. No, Come on, no, I this to. was Come such on. fun. Come on. No. Oh. When will I see you again? So uh, where do we want to start off? Do we want to start off with another actor, with something behind the scenes, something production? There's, there's a lot of avenues Let- we can... I mean, into. we have to talk about we have to talk about Julianne Moore. We do have to talk about Julianne Moore. We she have is, to talk about Julianne Moore. She is amazing in this movie. Her character in this is the perfect counter to like the sad mopey hate my life man. And because she's also sad mopey hate my life, but she's like, oh, isn't it great? I love being sad and mopey. Yeah, she's <laughs> and- very flamboyant, very dressed up. Her house is very modern in its decoration. She has her hair all up. She has her outfits and her makeup and everything. Yes. Drunk. Oh, this so she's dancing. She's all over the place. And yet her life is just as miserable. She has a son that has grown up and doesn't want to talk to her. She has at least two ex-husbands that are out of her life completely. She's hopelessly in love with her gay best friend who is like, <laughs> ve- who is also going through it. And she's had to, like she moved from London to LA with him to be around him. Like that's the, yes. the whole thing. And like, she tries to kiss him. She tries to be, she has the whole thing that we were talking about earlier where she's like, aren't you ready for a real relationship? Like a real, like yes. what, what you had oh with God. Jim was nice, but aren't you ready for a real love? And that's when he blows up at her and is like, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. That is yeah. horribly offensive. And like, you should know better is basically how it is. And she, she should, and she probably does, but she just, she can't control. Like she's also in this scene. She's so careless. She's yeah. so careless. Yeah, she's very uh, uh, crass also. Uh, there's the one line that I love where uh, she's talking about how some guy asked her if she was a natural blonde. Yes. And she says, uh, 
let me just put it this way. If I stood on my head, I would be a natural brunette with perfect breath. <laughs> oh, she's... I fucking love... All of those, all of the lines in that scene are perfect. I, I love when she says... I like that it's implied that it's not near December at all. <laughs> like, it's probably September or October or something yeah. like that. It's she's like, like the I middle have my of the semester. Yeah, and yeah. she's like, I have my New Year's resolutions. And so he's like, all right, what are your New Year's resolutions? And she's like, no more talk about ex-husbands and kids who hate you, or no job or whatever. And you're like, okay, that's one. And then what's the other? And she's like, more drinking, more smoking, and screw it all. <laughs> I love it. And it's so, the character is just so perfectly contrasted with Colin Firth's character and the performance style too. Yeah, because she's doing an she accent. is over the top yeah. and the movement and her body, like you can tell that this character, if she were to be a little bit younger and we were to go on for longer, she would be like disco dancer on the, at the club every night because she has this whole essence about her of like, despite the fact that she's completely tied down by all of the other things in her life, that she has two failed marriages, she has a kid who doesn't like to talk to her, like you said, in love with the, her gay best friend who clearly does not have any interest whatsoever. And she states multiple times that she's tried so hard to make all of this work and to put effort and energy and love into these relationships that just don't pan out. And yet she's so uh, free, yeah, which is interesting yeah, because she's... she has no shame about any of it. Yeah. But also you get in those, in those more introspective moments that, she absolutely does, but she just tries not to show it. Like, yes. the, the whole, the, obviously there's the, the joke about standing on her head and she'd be a natural brunette, but like, she does dye her hair to make herself look younger and more hip. She has, you know, you know her new, she has an adult son and her New Year's resolution is to drink and smoke a lot and not yeah. care about, like, she is very clearly harboring a lot of regrets, but she's just, you know, you know, fuck all that. I'm just going to live like I'm young because who cares? I'm, I'm free. Yeah. I'm on my own. Why not? I, it's a lot more fun that way. And it's a, it's a character that like, this could have easily been a story all about her and it would have worked out just like, there's so much more to that character that we only get a glimpse at. And I, I yes. think it's the perfect dose for this story. Like she shows up a little bit in the beginning where she calls them and is like, hey, we're going to have dinner tonight, right? Go pick me up some gin. I'm doing my eye makeup and I, I'm having a lot of fun. And then she shows up, she has the extended scene, uh, you know, two thirds of the way through where he actually goes over for dinner and they have all that. And then she's just gone from the movie. And it is mm -hmm. exactly what you need from her. And you do need this character to take things in a very different, but very needed direction where it, it shows that like George has this, tempestuous relationship with her as friends but they're still friends at the end of the day like it is not a yes. perfect friendship uh by any means but he still has that and he still has this person in his life that gets him in like she's one of the few people that even knows that he's gay uh yes this is 1962 uh even though it's california it's still 1962 it, it's not like they were openly in a relationship for all those 16 years. They, it was No, I mean, yeah. there's that scene at the beginning where it's a flashback and they have just moved into the house yeah. in California that they share. And 
they, for whatever reason, the entire house is made out of glass. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so Colin, uh, so George says something along the lines of, um, or they start making out and George says something along the lines of, you're not ready to live in a glass house. And Jim says, well, I thought we were invisible, aren't we? Yeah. And so it's implied so many times throughout the movie, or I guess really not implied. It's explicitly mm-hmm. stated. And then also one of the main, the main thematic ideas is the invisibility of um, minorities who are able to be invisible. And again, going back to the classroom scene, he gets at that when he's talking to the student because the student, it's also what a casting choice with the student because the student's asking about the anti-Semitism and um was Hitler right to think this then? And he is just the most clearly Jewish person you've ever seen. Like, yeah. He is, he is, when you imagine a racist stereotype of Jew, I'm Jewish. Uh, it's like, there, there he is. Sorry, throw that in there so no one thinks that I'm being anti-Semitic. Um, yeah. And he then, and then George goes on to say, there's all types of invisible minorities. And that's when it pans over to the little, two little gay kids sitting next to each other. And yeah the whole thematic idea of minorities who are able to slip through without being noticed, because obviously if you are a person of color or if you're uh, as visibly Jewish as this kid is, you don't have the opportunity to hide your minority to, to status. Pass in the, yes. Yeah. But that brings, when you do have that ability, it brings a whole new set of, um, fears uh, and uh, fears and isolation because you don't get to have especially in the 1960s as a game as a gay man in a long-term relationship he doesn't get to share happiness with a lot of people because he doesn't want to be judged he doesn't want to be outed um yeah he's not even able to share the the successful relationship with his partner's family because his partner's family is, it's implied that they're homophobic, besides John Ham, cousin John Ham. But yeah. um, Charlie is the one person who, A, has been there through all of it. So not only is he able to share his grief with her, but he's, she also just has an understanding of their relationship. Um, because it's, they've known each other from before he even met him. And that's why it's so upsetting and like hits you right in the heart when she says that um, what he had with Jim was nice, but like, isn't he ready for a real relationship? Because of everyone in his life, and even though we don't see the rest of the people, it's not important. And everyone in his life, this is supposed to be the person who is the most understanding. And even she has that internalized homophobia yes exactly exactly and and julianne moore plays that so well she plays like like she plays this character as believably a little bit crass to the point that she would absolutely say that kind of thing and not even realize what she's saying when she's saying it but yes it's like that could have easily been so detestable from from a different performer that there's no way to to garner any sort of goodwill beyond that. But because of the way Julianne Moore is playing it, you're like, oh, you're just drunk and incredibly jealous. And yes. yeah, also bigoted. But like, you, you get why... Bigoted, ju- 
they get it in a way that's not love. hateful. Yes. Yeah. They get it from a place that she doesn't genuinely like think that way. And she even says, but, like, I think it's just that I'm jealous of what you guys had, that you had an yes. actual thing for so long that meant a lot to both of you. Uh, whereas yes. she's been left by both of her husbands that that like they left her specifically. Uh, but like you, you get that you, you believe that George would go back to her immediately after that and be like, no, it's okay. I know what you meant. I like, we're still friends. This is not a, a complete relationship ruiner that you just said this horrible also, thing to me. It also just feels like something that she would have said a hundred times to him, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, this is not the upset. first time they've gone over this. No, he gets upset for sure, but I think that if this was the first time that this was being expressed, um, although he does he does say, I'm pretty sure there's a line that he says, so is this really how you feel about my relationship after all these years? But nonetheless, like, regardless of that line, it definitely still his reaction seems um, understated. So I think it's meant to be understood that he knows that she doesn't mean it. She's probably said this multiple times and there is never a misunderstanding between the two of them that she ever genuinely thought that way, nor that he would ever actually be upset with her like for a long period of time for her saying that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, One other thing about her performance I just want to mention uh, she's obviously American and playing a British character. But something that like really impressed me about that is when they're at the dinner table and they're telling these stories, uh, standing on her head, the uh, mm-hmm. asking if this lesbian woman was hung like a donut. Uh, but like throughout all this, she's like laughing really hard and she's able to laugh in another accent, which is incredibly tough to pull off as an actor. And I just, I that moment, like, like it focuses in on like, oh, she's, like, laughing really hard at herself, yeah. which also fits the character, that she's laughing yes, at yes, things yes. that she said in the past. But uh, that, that she's, she's pulling off a laugh in another accent. That's, that, that, that takes incredible talent and uh, incredible uh, presence in, within the character to, to, yes. to embody it so fully. Uh, I, love, I love the scene where she's just laughing nonstop at herself, just at her own jokes. It's so good. It, it's exactly who that person is, is that they would sit around at dinner being like, hey, remember when I said this? Remember when I said this? Aren't I hilarious? There he is. I'm so yeah. fun. I'm so fun. It's, it's, it's the perfect encapsulation of Charlie. Uh, uh, stepping outside of the actors for a second, uh, we, we talked about Tom Ford as a, you know, this is his, his debut film after his, his extensive career as a fashion designer. And there was, there was definitely skepticism in the time of like, oh, is Tom, does Tom Ford know how to make a movie? Like, what is this going to be? Is this going to be just some big flamboyant mess of like aesthetics? And it's not. Like the, aesthetically, this film does have some choices that I, th- I think are a little bit like some parts are over edited. It feels like uh, th- there's a point where he's in the bathroom and he's staring out the window at the neighbor kids, like uh, digging around in the dirt, playing with the scorpion, mm-hmm. crushing a moth and all this. And mm-hmm. it keeps like cutting back and forth between the same shot uh, zooming out from the window. It's like the same shot of him overused uh, over and over. Uh, th- there's some moments where the editing feels like you could have 
reined that in a little bit more. Um, yeah. But uh, beyond that, I, th- I think aesthetically, this movie does some very interesting things that you can tell it's directed by someone whose main formal experience is not in film. Uh, yes. That, that it's in a, a different, a completely different field of art. And I, I always love watching movies like that, movies that are made by artists outside of the film industry. Like uh, anytime uh, Julian Schnabel's films, I think are always very interesting artistically. Uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, the the production of this film, it all feels very, not, it doesn't feel like a very realistic 1962. Like it feels very heightened in its well, stylistic. Well, the whole thing is, com- yeah, the whole thing is completely over stylized. Like yeah. entirely, which I don't, I don't think over stylized is a bad word. And I don't oh, think no, it's I, 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 think it, I think it works here. I think it works here a lot. Yes. Like, the whole design of the college, uh, even the design of the house, which like the house uh, was apparently, I, I read into this a little bit. It was designed like in 1948 by someone who had been an apprentice for, uh, or an apprentice for Frank Lloyd Wright. And this was the first oh. house he designed after leaving that apprenticeship and starting his own, you know, uh, work as an architect. Uh, it's it's a very modern looking house with the big yes. glass like floor to ceiling panels and the slant of the roof and it, like it extends outward rather than upward. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a like that's not any production design of the actual filmmakers, but uh, like location scouting to find that house and to have that house, like you said, how that fits thematically with the idea of invisibility out in the open like uh i i think they they picked a a perfect location for that but also everything like i said in the school in the bank uh the scene that he has with carlos uh outside the the giant poster of janet lee's face uh Mm -hmm. with the big blue eyes in the background uh yeah I, i think production wise the the art direction specifically of this film really pops in in some very eye-catching ways Mm -hmm. yeah and on top of the the set design the house the scene with uh carlos in the parking lot simply just the the colors of everything yes (laughs) um that scene specifically in the parking lot of the liquor store with carlos is just one of the most gorgeous gorgeous scenes which is of course it's completely over stylized the everything is pink and you're like I've been in a sunset before, but, and I know this is not how it works, but I'm totally fine with pretending that this is realistic. Yeah, um, it, the movie does that a few times where, like, within a shot, even, the saturation, like, is dialed up. Like, you can mm-hmm. see it go from the very, like, creams and browns and tans into, like, pinks and blues. and Like, you see them dialing up the saturation in real time, it feels like, almost. He, it happens, well, it is in real time. He does that with... Um, it's a it's a lot like it's when like uh, sometimes it's accompanied by like a beating heart noise it's like whenever there's a big emotional moment the color yes. almost returns to his world in a in a very literal sense uh but yeah like that's maybe the best example of it is that scene in the parking lot yeah well and then i mean that one i feel like is maybe i don't know if subtle is the word because it's not subtle at all you can clearly see it but when he steps out into the to the world that's what it looks like but in the beginning there the scenes with the secretary when 
they zoom in on her face. Her lips and her face go from being like pale and just for lack of a better way to say it, like human looking to being bright and colorful and her lips become red and her teeth are white and her skin is like glowy and like alive. And that happens in real, like you literally see it go from here to here. Yeah. In yeah. One like, shot. I, like I, I wouldn't be surprised if they actually, I don't know if this was done on digital or film, but if they manually cranked, the saturation in whatever editing bay they had to be like, okay, we're going to take the slider and just slide it up as, as the, as the shot is moving on and then just leave it at that. Like it, it, like you said, it's not a subtle decision, but you don't see that in other movies. Like they, you don't that's not a thing that they teach you to do in film school. So I, I think that shows that like, this is, this is not done by someone who has formal training in this mm-hmm. field and it works. Like it, it is a very fresh look at, at that sort of thing. Um, I mean, yeah, I think it's pretty, it's pretty essential to the movie. Oh, yeah. um, I, I don't think that, okay. I don't really like that phrase, but I don't think that anyone else could have made this because obviously anyone can make anything. It's just that I don't think it would have been half as uh, impactful. without his stylistic choices and call it pretentious call it over stylized call it whatever you will i think anyone who says that the movie would be just as good without these minor things whether it comes to the coloring or the set design or the the costume even i think anyone who says it would have been equally as good without those is lying yeah uh the the review that i mentioned earlier that's that talks a lot about the gun and the difference from uh book to screen talks a lot about how in the book we're just following George over this day uh, and it's very much uh, his internal description of things and his inner monologue describing people and places and the interactions he's having and his perce- his inner perception of that and you just can't do like film is a very uh, like you, you can't get that level of subjectivity in film and I, I think this is Tom Ford's way of not representing that directly, but uh, uh, emulating that in, in a way that is not a tangible uh, aspect. Like it is a very, it, it is just flair added to the movie that, yes. that uh, enhances the story being told without being essential to the narrative specifically. Mm-hmm. yeah no i agree yeah also worth noting uh we mentioned or you mentioned the costuming very briefly costumes not done by tom ford uh there's a different, really yeah a different costume designer i didn't write down her name too on every little too on the nose if tom ford did the costumes yeah. honestly it but was... nonetheless it still has his essence of just like classy and not over the top oh yeah um, which there's... i actually don't like tom ford that much as a designer however i do respect his work i do think that it's beautiful it's just like not not my personal style but even if i'm trying to find right now who did the the costumes um even if he did the costumes i don't think it would have been all that different from what it looks like currently um and i'm sure he definitely had some say yeah Uh, there was something on imdb i think talking about specifically the suit that george wears and how mm -hmm. tom ford like handpicked that suit as like 
this is a suit he probably bought like five or six years ago because this level of like British upper middle class person would be a little bit stingy with, you know, I'm not going to go out and buy a new suit every year. This one fits mm-hmm. me just fine. Yes. And like he had a whole backstory for like, oh, he bought the suit uh, the last time that uh, George and Jim went to London together. And like, none of that is in the film. That's all just something that Tom Ford came up with behind the scenes to justify this particular suit that he's wearing. But like, obviously you're going to get that from Tom Ford. You're going to get that level of uh, dedication to an aesthetic, uh, even without him as the head costume designer of the film. Yeah. I just liked that aspect. Uh, the, The rest of the cast, I think is all really strong. Nobody is, I mean, Nicholas Holt probably is, but I don't think anyone else shows up for a, a ton. Matthew, you get Matthew no, Good in the flashbacks. You get Matthew Good, you get Nicholas Holt, you get uh, John Cortajarena, but again, like all of that is quite minor. You also get, um, I don't like her that much. What's her name? Jennifer, Jennifer Goodwin. Yeah, she's the um, neighbor. The yeah, she, I mean, listen, it's a good role for her. It's exactly like that is how I picture her. Yeah. Um, yeah, honestly, like not too much to say about the rest of the performances. Everything was solid. Uh, this is Colin Firth and Julianne Orr's movie. So yes. like in a way grateful that nothing was like too in your face or uh, so out of your face that it took away. Um, I think everything else was kind of just at the correct level of where it needed to be. Um, yes, exactly. All of the characters were played as they should have been. The neighbors were played as they should have been. Like the all-American family and uh, Carlos's character is like exactly the amount of like sultry, sexy it needs to be. But like, without it being like, wait, no, come back. I need you for the movie. Like once he's gone, you're like, I'm so glad we had that interaction. But let's move back to our character. Um, and then yeah, I guess the only other person who I think has a major enough part to even be spoken about is Nicholas Holt. But even then, his movie, uh, his movie, his role is just where it needs to be. Like, I don't have anything super significant to say about it. Yeah, like, like he's doing a good job. This is, has got to be extremely early for him. I don't know what else he had even, what else had he been in at this point? I'm how, how old must he have been in this movie? Because he, he's young. He's like, he was... He would have been 20. Uh, like that's crazy to be 19 doing that or 20 I mean, making this. Uh, the, there's a, a story, I think it was on the, again... I do a lot of my research just through IMDb and Wikipedia, but there was uh, apparently someone else, a a much bigger star uh, had been cast in this role and was like ready to go. And then they just didn't show up to their costume fitting like five days before shooting. And then Tom Ford remembered the audition tape that Nicholas Holt had sent in and was able to get in last minute. Um, Some article uh, claimed that that was Jamie Bell but I don't think they've ever said specifically Who's who Jimmy it was. Uh, from uh, Billy Elliot, the kid from Billy Elliot. He's Bernie Taupin in Rocket Man. He's... Uh, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah that yeah. guy. So Nick yeah, this, this would have... It would have... I don't think it would have made... Gotta be honest, I don't think it would have made too much of a difference. I do appreciate that he is the correct age. I appreciate that they hired someone who was 20 to play a college student because if they had hired an older person and still tried to, like, make us believe that he's having this uh rejuvenating moment with this college student when the actor is like 30 i don't think anyone would have really bought it um yeah well how old would jamie bell have been he wouldn't have been that 
Oh yeah, he's he's only like three years older than Nicholas Holt, but yeah, like Holt is twenty. Okay, nineteen, yeah. twenty. Yeah, it's still, uh, it probably it would have been believable, but yeah, in general, I'm glad that um, the age casting was appropriate. Speaking of people that this is absolutely not related to a single man at all, but speaking of people that dropped out of uh, things last minute, you know that Colin Firth was supposed to play the voice of Paddington. Was he? I know. Tell me, I'm so upset, but. That's interesting. Tell me how amazing that would have been. I don't know if it would have been the right decision. <laughs> like, Paddington is supposed to be a bear and Colin Firth is like a classy man. However, Ben Whishaw been, still has that, that kind of tone. Yes, but it's more like wholesome, you know? Colin Firth is very like. Adult. And, yeah, ben yeah adult. He's, play he is as, a man. Yes, yes, exactly. But I, didn't know I that. don't know. Just, I know, interesting little, little side piece. I think it would have been a very different movie, but. I would have liked to see it nonetheless. They should remake it exactly the same, except they should put Colin Firth's voice in it, just so I can see. Just, just so I can see. find out what it would have been like. Just to see what it would have been like, yeah. Um, also, I just want to mention, because I, I went on that Wikipedia thread, uh, Nicholas Holt is the, the titular boy in About a Boy, the, uh, uh, the I, Hugh Grant movie from... Oh my God. I don't, I don't think I've seen About a Boy, but I do know of it. Oh yeah, look at that. He, and he had done That's some really uh, funny. some other. He's in the Weatherman, apparently that Nicolas Cage movie, The Weatherman. He's in a movie called Kidulthood. Uh, this is his like sixth film role, apparently, according. Yeah, to, uh, child child actor, child actor. Yeah. A lot of TV, a lot of TV as a kid, apparently. But yeah, yeah. This this is like his his first big like. Oh, I'm like a a grown up in a grown up movie, and from there, obviously, his career has gone plenty of places and uh excited to see where it goes next i think he's one of the more interesting actors of his generation that does some very peculiar things and isn't afraid to do some peculiar Mm -hmm. things like in mad max or the favorite uh where he's he's not the person you talk about from the cast of the favorite but he's no he's not i kind of forgot he was in the movie to be honest but yeah it is it's a great role and really yeah his his role in um in uh, mad max is also I mean, listen, again, not the person we're going to be talking about when we talk about Mad Max. However, when you remember that he's in it, you're like, yeah, that was a good role. He played that well. He really did. He, he's, he's great in a lot of things. Uh, he's great in this too, but yeah, the, he does what the role is required to do. And I, I think he fits without drawing attention away from Colin Firth in any way. I feel like that's his, his general role as an actor, which you got to respect. You got to respect actors like that because- Sometimes you get these little, I don't want to say like, well, okay, no, I will say side characters. He's a side character. Um, Despite the fact that his role is essential, that doesn't change the fact that it's still a side character. Um, And they are wanting to fill the role so badly and like be as seen as they can be that it distracts from the main performance. But I think the fact that every movie we just spoke about where I was like, oh yeah, he was in that, he was good, but I didn't remember that he was in it. Is a good sign. I think that is a sign of a good side character actor. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, one other thing I do want to mention, because it was probably outside of Julianne Moore, uh, the closest this movie got to another Oscar nomination is the score by uh, oh, uh, Abel Korzianowski, I believe is how that would be pronounced. It is a, it is a beautiful score. Uh, it is mostly strings and it, it's able to convey so many different 
feel like it, it, it is intense when the movie needs it to be intense it is yes. slow when the movie needs it to be slow and contemplative it is emotional it is cheerful and like in the scene when when they're out uh swimming in the beach that might be a, a i think that's original score i don't think that's a, a previous uh, composition i'll double uh, check but there's a handful uh, of scenes where they do use arrangements of of other uh uh compositions yeah. and i wonder if that um, made it ineligible by the Oscars' weird rules about uh, percentage I don't know, of because, original score? Because I think that... Let's see. No, because it seems like everything else besides the exception of uh, songs with words... Oh. But I, I don't know. Yeah, okay, I don't I, know. I, I, probably, I don't know that much about the rules for best original score, so maybe I shouldn't uh, say this, but the other parts of the movie besides like the like stormy weather is in the movie and then they dance to another like more upbeat song um when they're at their dinner but the other parts of the score as they as it as it says on uh wikipedia operatic areas arias um arias is, i think i i do not Ar- know how to pronounce arias. that word we're gonna pretend that we pronounced it right yeah um is done by another composer for the movie yeah. so it's not like it's not like it's other like they didn't take other soundtrack and use it it's written for films um it is makes me literally when i hear the opening piece i just start crying because i remember it's, it's intense in the movie and it makes me so upset yeah um, just that opening the opening credits over him in in the ocean or pool or wherever like the yes. cuts to colin frith's naked body floating around this water and the score they have over that right off the bat is like oh you are in for a ride you're in for a very intense emotional uh grounded ride and the music sells that so effortlessly uh it's beautiful it is really beautiful stuff yes agreed i'm Uh, sending that didn't get nominated yeah. Uh, do we? Speaking of, do we want to move on to the? Well, before we move on to the Oscars, one more thing, complete, like almost completely unrelated. But I found this while I was doing my research, and I thought it was funny. Uh, so we talked about Lois briefly, the uh, the mm-hmm. uh, Kenny's friend who you know sits with him in class and smokes in the classroom. Um, yeah. I don't think she has any lines. I looked up the actress that plays her. She's a model. And, I'm looking at the page right now. Yeah. Her Wikipedia has a line that says, "Uh." She is Brazilian, uh, of German descent. Her German heritage in Brazil dates back over a century, which I love that the wig, like, it's not saying, hey, her family was here before the Nazis, so don't think that her family were escaped Nazis that went to Brazil, but they're absolutely saying that. They're they're like, we're going to, I bet you she wrote this. Yeah. (laughs) Or someone she knows, someone her family Some PR person is like, hey, just because we were Germans living in Brazil, doesn't mean we were Nazis. No, yeah, that's like me when I tell people that I'm from South Africa. I'm like, you have to understand my family was in South Africa for generations. <laughs> I'm like, we didn't we didn't come here during apartheid to like fuck people up. Um, but yeah, that is, that is funny. Um, yeah. She's hot. She's very yeah. hot. Okay, yeah. anyway. So it feels it's, like a, yes, okay. Uh, let's move on and talk about the Oscars and uh, a single man at uh, the the awards of 2009 uh i had to i i still even still have to double check to make sure i say a single man and not a serious man 
because those are both in the Serious same. Serious Man's year. it's a great movie too, though. Yeah. But um, not quite as good. But none. Ugh, I'm looking through the the Oscars for this year, and this year was just garbo, like yeah. so bad. Some weird, so some weird bad. choices. Um, also worth noting, just on on that topic, uh, there's a single man and a serious man in this year, and there's also solitary man in this year with Michael Douglas, which is similarly about a middle-aged white guy going through some sort of crisis. Uh, All of these men going through their crisis, because yeah, Serious Man is also about a, well, I guess it's more religiously based, but a, a crisis of sorts nonetheless. Yes, absolutely. Um, a, a, a crisis. And, he, and he's also a professor. Uh, interesting. Come on, guys. What happened in this there. year that we got so stuck in this, this character stereotype? Yeah. In a single man... Colin Firth and I play two people who've been best friends for 20 years. In reality, we had just met and only worked together for three days. I had only heard exemplary things about him and so had extremely high expectations. And he managed to exceed everyone with his ease, charm, humor, and generosity. It wasn't hard for me to believe that I'd known and loved him all of my life. His courage and integrity in letting us see the depth of one man's shattering grief is testament to his enormous talent. And I can tell you that three days not nearly enough time to spend in the company of the magnificent Colin Firth. Congratulations. Okay, so uh, before we talk about the Oscars, I'm going to run down some of the other awards and nominations that a single man got throughout the season of uh, of 2009. This is uh, a, a pretty a pretty good showing for a movie like this, a movie this small and very specific in what it's about. Uh, so I, I said it premiered at the Venice Film Festival. It played in competition for The Golden Lion. It did not win that. It lost to a film called Lebanon. But the movie wins the uh, the Queer Lion, uh, which it's the third year that they had given that out, which is basically uh, the Golden Lion, but specifically about films with a queer theme. Uh, and also Colin Firth wins the uh, Volpe Cup for Best Actor at Venice, which th- that's probably, you know, when, when a performance, especially by a movie star, wins big at like Venice or Berlin or Cannes, that's usually a good start to a season of like, oh, this could maybe be an Oscar something for them, especially because at this point, Colin Firth is coming off of, you know, the Pride and Prejudice TV movie in the 90s and The English Patient and Shakespeare in Love and Bridget Jones and Mamma Mia and all this stuff. Like, he's an actor that's been around for a while, but he's never been nominated for an Oscar. And this could be, yes. like, oh, this could be a, a Colin Firth thing. And then as the season goes on, he gets nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Dr- uh, Actor in a Drama. He loses that to Jeff Bridges for Crazy Heart, who ends up basically sweeping the season because it's also a, hey, Jeff Bridges doesn't have an Oscar. And that happens. That's the, I'll, I'll, that's the issue with this year, specifically with this year in general as well. But every, every nominee for this year, actually, let me let you finish before I get into it. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Just uh, also at the Golden Globes, Julianne Moore is nominated, uh, which is nice. She the whole supporting actress of this year we'll get into it in a bit but it's four people are pretty much locked in and then a bunch of people are kind of up in the air no pun intended as to who the fifth slot is going to be 
Julianne Moore is in heavy consideration, ends up missing the nomination. Also at the Globes, it is nominated for Best Original Score, which I'm, I'm glad that got nominated somewhere and somewhere big. Uh, at, at SAG, Colin Firth is nominated for Best Actor. Uh, SAG this year goes almost completely in line with the eventual Oscar nominees, except for, once again, that fifth slot in Supporting Actress. They go for Diane Kruger for Inglorious Bastards instead of Great eventual. Performance. Yeah, very good. Uh, eventual nominee Maggie Gyllenhaal for Crazy Heart, uh, who ends up not showing up anywhere along the way until the actual Oscars. Yeah. At, at the BAFTAs, Colin Firth actually wins Best Actor uh, because I mean, oh, it's BAFTAs. Is Colin yes. Firth British institution at this point? Yeah, uh, no, they're not. They're not gonna give uh, Jeff Bridges the, the the leading man role at the BAFTA. <laughs> yes, uh, it is also nominated at BAFTA for best costume design, which it loses to The Young Victoria, which ends up uh, going on to win the Oscar. A movie that basically doesn't exist nowadays, but you know how much they love That's, their period piece costume dramas. Man, it's like half the movies from this year don't exist anymore. Yeah, that's an that's a weird thing considering this is only barely a decade old so many of these movies in big categories are all but forgotten yes even among oscar people like these movies are pretty often like even crazy hearts a two-time academy award winner is a movie that nobody ever talks about and i know that you told me that up in the air is good and i believe you but i outside of the oscars have never heard anybody talk about this movie yeah yeah this is for a year where they, this is the first year that they expanded Best Picture back out to 10 nominees, uh, largely in response to the backlash of uh, The Dark Knight and Wally not getting nominated the year before. Oh, man. Like, a lot of these movies are, are by the wayside, uh, which is very interesting. In, yeah. In some of these go, go down. Other precursor things, though, uh, Critics' Choice, it gets nominated for. Colin Firth, Julianne Moore, Adapted Screenplay, and Art Direction. Uh, Indie Spirits, it is nominated for Best First Feature, Best Male Lead, and Best First Screenplay. Uh, It makes the AFI Top 10 of the Year, which was a very weird Top 10 list, if you look at that. The or the, not the nominees, but the list they have. It's Coraline, The Hangover, The Hurt Locker, The Messenger, Mm. Precious, Mm. A Serious Man, A Single Man, something called Sugar that I've never heard of, Up and Up in the Air. What on God's earth was happening? I do not know. I do not know why Todd Phillips' The Hangover was almost <laughs> an Oscar nominee what? picture just because it was a big hit. Jesus oh, man. Christ. Uh, Satellite Awards, it's nominated for Best Actor for Colin Firth and it wins for its art direction. Uh, Los Angeles Film Critics, uh, Firth is a runner-up to Jeff Bridges. He wins uh, Critics' Prizes with Detroit and London and San Diego and San Francisco and is nominated a bunch of other places. Uh, a, a bunch of critics. Like, this movie gets a lot of critics' attention, specifically for him, but also Julianne Moore shows up a bunch at critics' places. The score, mm-hmm. the art direction, uh, screenplay. Tom Ford, I don't think, gets any... Nom- I mean, he gets nominated as a, a co-writer, but I don't think he gets any directing citations for this. But, yeah, like, this is... Uh, as far as critics uh, uh, groups go, this is... Obviously, Colin Firth gets nominated pretty much everywhere. 
Julianne Moore shows up a lot of the time and score, art direction, and adapted screenplay are like the three other categories that it gets multiple nominations. Yeah. Uh, which are all very deserving as we Yeah, as we I think that about. makes I think that makes quite a bit of sense. But yeah, as we mentioned, uh this performance, this uh, we we obviously spoke for like an hour about how much we love this performance ends up losing to Jeff Bridges for Crazy Heart. Which oh, man. I mean, I watched man oh man. It was one of the uh, the winners that I hadn't seen yet. Uh, one of the, or at least one of the recent winners that I hadn't gotten around to. I ended up watching it yesterday, and it's fine. It's not bad. Like Jeff Bridges is someone that I I very much like as an actor. So like, I don't think he was bad in the movie. I think he had some very good moments throughout, and it makes sense cosmically that Jeff Bridges has an Oscar. But yes, but that's the for problem. This is that is it, it, he didn't need to win for this no i mean okay admittedly i won't i won't get on the pod and lie i have not seen crazy heart i've also not seen up in the air nor have i seen invictus i However, also haven't seen invictus i i i decided against spending two and a half hours of my time on yes woods invictus a perfectly reasonable decision um the issue with the oscars every year this year in particular, some might argue, is they value long longevity yes. <laughs> over actual talent. And so to me, when you look at this lineup, the, okay, the Oscars like to do two things. The Oscars like to, A, um, push talent a certain way. So I think they specifically choose up-and-coming actors. Not to say that at this point, George Clooney was an up-and-coming actor, but, you know, like, he definitely was not as in the game as Morgan Freeman and Jeff Bridges were yes. at this point. Um, they like to place their, their, two, their two little categories are people who have been around in the industry for a very long time who have not won an Oscar, so they're going to nominate them to prove that they respect them. And then two, which in this year, it's Jeremy Renner for Hurt Locker and George Clooney for Up in the Air. It's the people that they want to push down that road to continue to be uh, well-respected by the Academy and then by the general public as well. Yeah. Um, and then... And even this, Colin Firth, too. Like, at this point, this is his first nomination. Although he's been in, like, a couple Best Picture winners at this point. But this is the well, first time they're taking him seriously as, like, oh, you're, like, an actual actor. You're not just a pretty boy rom-com guy. Wait, but... Oh, no, never mind. I was thinking of King's Speech, but King's Speech, King's Speech is next year. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, there you go. That, that just shows that they push people a certain way because they yeah. want to be able to nominate them at a later point. That, um, that's the thing that, like, about those two years specifically is that this year, Jeff Bridges beats a superior performance from Colin Firth. And the next year, Colin Firth beats a superior performance by Jeff Bridges in True Grit. And if, if we had just had the, high, the, the foresight to swap those wins. To wait, to just I think wait. Everyone would feel much better about both of those. Because, like, again, Colin Firth isn't bad in a, in the King's Speech. I actually don't mind no, the King's Speech as a movie. It's just I think it's not it, it's boring. It is the boring it's... choice, but I think he gives a good performance in it. But I think Jeff Bridges is so much better than him. And, and here's the thing, right? Swap those. We'd all be nobody's happy. talking. I mean King's Speech, people talk about it because it 
it was it won the best because picture. It, yes, because of its but, Oscar success. But other than that, who cares? Yeah. And also, same thing with Crazy Heart. Other than Jeff Bridges winning for uh, best actor, who cares? Who's talking about it nobody, anymore? Nobody. Crazy Versus Heart exists as an Oscar movie first, foremost, and only. Only yes, and then further, people, especially within, okay, maybe like as a society we don't talk about a single man whereas like i feel like with true grit most people know true grit because it's a coen brothers movie and they're obviously much better known um but nonetheless within film spaces a single man is still very much talked about and respected these oh, days yeah. especially when it like, came out like yeah. it, I, it's, it's pride month now this is a movie that gets brought up a lot especially around this time it's like hey this is a very good very interesting look at this kind of story uh, like this, this is a movie that is still uh, hailed as very, uh, you know, well-made representation without just being rep- like it, it is a well-made film first and foremost. And yes, like it gets it gets brought up positively way more than the King's Speech does, way more than yes. Crazy Heart does. Even these movies aren't really as good. Yeah, yeah no, true. Is, okay, they also just aren't. Here's as good. the thing. Here's the thing. They're all fine. That's it. They're yeah. not like they're not impactful in any way for me. I mean, yeah. if, if it's impactful for somebody else, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pull you down for being impacted by what you get impacted by. But I think on a couple of um, uh, objective levels, this movie has more to offer emotionally, and then therefore one of my philosophies about film is the more emotional whether it be happiness or grief or uh, anger or whatever it is that it makes the audience feel the longer it will stay in the audience's mind and the longer it will continue to be relevant yes, um, exactly as time goes on and so yeah king's speech is fine triggered is fine I haven't seen crazy heart i'm sure it's fine i'm sure it's not terrible but it's i'm sure bad. it's not great it's not either. bad at all yeah yeah um but in a hundred years is anybody going to care about those three movies it seems unlikely. Whereas a single man, I think, will continue to be like cultural importance, less so maybe, but in terms of movies, queer, queer cinema about um, relationships that aren't really discussed. It, it, and what I mean by that is I can list for you off the top of my head, like five to 10 movies right now about a relationship between two men. I can only think of one that explores the idea of grief. Yeah. Which is what, at the end of the day, this is what this movie is about. And it's great to see queer happiness, queer, like the expression of queer joy and positive, and then also hardship in terms of societal, fam- familial, whatever, um, historical significance. But as I, like, as I try to think, I can't think of any movie that explores the after effects of a queer relationship that you weren't able to share with the world and then the grief that you deal with that after your partner passes or i mean it didn't have to necessarily pass it could have been they broke up or whatever else yeah Um, especially you know an english language film a film that is ultimately mainstream a film with movie stars yes like like this is these these are like colin firth julian moore these are big name movie stars making yes. this story that like 
I'm sure there are there are films from other cultures from very independent filmmakers that are telling those same stories, but they're they're just at the end of the day not going to have the same eyes on them that yes, a movie exactly. like this is going Sorry. to. Get. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not that he's the first to ever do it. It's just that it's one of the earliest movies that I can think of. I'm sure there's others, but in the mainstream, like the reason why I use me as an example is because I'm not like, I know, I know about film, but I don't know every single movie ever made. Whereas I feel like some people definitely have a more extensive knowledge, especially of this time. But um, as far as movies by directors that people will probably, well, maybe not director, but movies by people who will be continued to be respected and talked about for a much, much longer period than say whoever directed the king's speech i don't remember tom hooper um, tom hooper uh of, who of is... cats and les miserables mm, well 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 tom and the hooper. danish girl yeah look what or, you've done now <laughs> or i genuinely couldn't tell you who directed crazy heart and i watched it yesterday like i i i, I do not know who did that movie uh it's... scott cooper apparently Scott oh, Cooper. He did Black Mass and uh, Antlers. Huh. Okay, so not too sure. much going for him. Um, he also plays the son of a uh, clan member in Austin Powers. Apparently. Great. Appar- so they say. <laughs> so they say. So they say. Um, but yeah, my, my point is that um, the cast, the director, the general acknowledgement by American and Western media besides Brokeback Mountain from this point in time can't really think of many other yeah. queer movies that are like as talked about recognized yeah 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 that's definitely uh, something worth noting uh, especially you know like we said we're recording this during Pride Month it's going up during Pride Month this is an era where that is still something that uh, filmmakers are fighting for uh, to be to be told in, in in mainstream cinema. Worth noting that Tom Ford himself is gay, right? And so you know, not often that you get. I mean, I I, I did that whole series of posts recently about uh, uh, queer characters versus queer actors uh, at the Oscars, but. Specifically, queer directors is some are something that you know the, the Oscars have have their their issues with. Uh, although this year that we're talking about, uh, Lee Daniels is nominated for Precious, and he's openly gay. So oh sweet, yeah. But uh, oh, that was maybe yeah. We got <laughs> we got we got Lee Daniels. We got Quentin Tarantino. We got James Cameron. Um, well, Catherine Bigelow won the directing yeah. award which i you know great so happy to have a female director win a movie is garbage but we can talk about that at a different time yeah. um yeah we, we i can... mean I, I was just gonna say that if tom ford hadn't directed this film i i'm struggling to think of another like besides lee daniels an openly queer director who would have been recognized by the oscars like in this period of the the late 2000s there's a handful like a few years prior to this you have like almodovar and uh todd haynes or no todd haynes is nominated but his films are um 
uh, Rob Marshall nominated for is, Chicago. Um, wait, here's a dumb question. Is Almodovar gay? Yes. Okay, that makes so much sense, actually, now yeah. that I'm hearing that. Um, yeah, and, uh, I, I had somehow, I knew that, but I also didn't know that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, who's the other one in that year? Um, oh, uh, I think Stephen Daldry is gay. I could be wrong about that, but no, maybe not. Uh, never mind. Uh, but but still, uh, at least those two are nominated, Rob Marshall and Pedro Almodovar, in the same year. So there, there's a handful of of queer directors that they're they are oh uh, Gus Van Sant the year prior to this is nominated for Milk uh is Gus Van Sant gay? yeah yeah he's gay look at all these things that I'm learning today wow wow hey, wow l- learning all of opportunity. these people all of these people are people that I were aware of made queer movies but I was not aware that they were queer themselves um ever since the wait hold on a second hold on a second Milk, as in Sean Penn Milk. Yes. Was directed by Gus. Gus Van Zandt, yeah. Gus Van Zandt. I always forget mm. that's him, but apparently. That is wild. I did not know that. Yeah. That is so not a him movie. That's like. Right? That feels completely different from his no, abilities. No, but... completely away from what his usual style is. Okay, but anyways, well, just had a, a bunch of, just learned a bunch of things in a short period of time. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I stand a little bit corrected. It seems oh, no, like no. You're, um, you're, the point you were making, I think, still completely stands. Is that the, the, the they era have a where those, issue. Oh, just that this is the era where those movies are slowly but surely being integrated into what the Oscars are looking towards in, in more oblique terms. Yes. And this this comes like right around like. I, I talked about Beginners as, as my first episode, actually, uh, and that's Ugh, just a couple years after this. Yeah, oh, that's such a good, such a good one. Um, do we? Uh, we can talk a little bit about this Best Actor lineup. I know you said you haven't seen many of these. Uh, we talked about Jeff Bridges. I also haven't seen Invictus, so I can't speak to Morgan Freeman there. Listen, uh, it's Morgan Freeman. I'm sure he was good. And yeah, that's and it. He's I'm playing, sure he was good, and that's it. Yeah, uh, Hurt Locker. I. I I'm kind of mixed on that movie as well. Seems like you're less mixed and more uh, overall negative, but I mean, I'm not actively waking up every day and being like, "God damn, I hate the Hurt Locker." However, um, after I saw it, because I saw it for the purpose of, like I said, when these Oscars uh, were happening, I was probably 11, so I saw it for the purpose of um, knowing what Catherine Bigelow was nominated for, because obviously that was a pretty significant win. Um, I was disappointed to say the least, especially when, like, during this time, it's not like there was no female directors working. Um, so I thought this was a very strange choice. Um, and I do not remember Jim Renner's performance at all, which I think says something about his performance. I've got to be honest. Um, it's the same. All of the actors from this year, besides Colin Firth, and um, Jeff Bridges. It's just like I know exactly what their performance was like without seeing the movie. That's yeah, that's entirely fair. Like Clooney and up in the. It's been a while since I've seen Up in the Air, but to my memory, he's giving a very George Clooney performance. He's giving a very. It's very. He doesn't have know, much range. Yeah, he's so a very I can't imagine self, a very self-assured man that acts like he's in control of the situation, 
but is secretly very broken inside and yes. has to come to terms with that over the course of the film. And it's a good performance from him. Like, I'm, I'm not knocking it, but it, you're right. It does kind of fit into the Clooney uh, uh, character archetype, even without having seen the film. Like, you are kind of spot on with that assessment. Okay, well, here's what I'm, what I'm looking at in the lineup is that actually, if I really think about it, I think that is the classification for all of the nominees this year. However, that being said, I think that Colin Firth had more um this was one of his more serious roles in a, in a lineup of less serious roles so i think that even though he's playing a sort of similar character to what he usually plays it's a different uh he has range a high, of emotional he has a yeah, higher capacity. bar uh, he has a higher bar to to leap because I, I mean at this point i don't know if he's if he has played other gay characters in his career leading up to this i, I know he has fins but I think that this may have been, at, at the very least, a first on a mainstream level. Like on a, I mean, not to say that this is a mainstream movie. This is an incredibly small movie, even in its time. But to be playing uh, against type, let's say, uh, yeah, he, he does have a uh, higher expectations to meet. Uh, yeah. Also, just worth pointing out that this best actor lineup kind of i mean like i mentioned with the sag awards how that uh that is almost completely in line with the eventual oscar nominees like that this category kind of firms up pretty quickly so it's not even that firth was even though he's the only nominee for the movie it's not like he was fighting for this nomination like this was a, a an expected nomination for him uh and for pretty much everyone else here yeah, I was going to say, there's not really any surprises within this lineup. Yeah, um, or, or like I said with that, within the year, outside of Maggie Gyllenhaal, who, is, who shows up nowhere in the precursors for that movie. But this is... But, a, but I mean, with the movie being, nom- with Up in the Air being nominated uh, for Best Actor for, I mean, Anna Kendrick has a nom in, in the supporting role as well. Yeah, yeah, but like she has... A, a big emotional part in Crazy Heart, and this is like in the era of when is Maggie Gyllenhaal going to get a nomination? So like, it, it, I, I've heard some people say that like, even though she wasn't showing up at like the Globes or SAG or anything, if you were looking in the right places, a, a couple people were able to predict that nomination. Uh, kind of in the same way that like Jesse Plemons this year for Power of the Dog or Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter. Like, yeah, that's fair. They didn't get they didn't show up places, but if you knew who to listen to uh, and where the praise was going for those movies, uh, it's a it's a somewhat expectable if you're in the know of a, a coattail nomination. Uh, and she she ends up taking this. I would imagine, based on the Globe and Critics' Choice nominations, that Julianne Moore is probably a, a close sixth for that slot because uh, this is also in the era of. Julianne Moore doesn't have an Oscar and she's one of our, you know, yeah, most respected yeah, yeah. actresses. Uh, and if, if it weren't for Monique, who gives an all-timer performance in Precious, like, yes, Julianne Moore would probably be my personal winner in that category for this year. Yeah, uh, I... Because she's so I, good, again, but... Haven't seen... I also think I just confused Maggie John Hall with Farrah Farmiga because they look the same in my brain. Um, oh, but... yeah, I actually hadn't thought about that, but they do look very similar. Weird. Because I think I was just thinking I was like up in the air, 
was nominated for, for another category. Uh, it was uh, two actresses in this category. And then I'm like, no, because Maggie Gyllenhaal and Vera Farmiga are switched and I'm doing this wrong in my head. But yeah, um, yeah the like nobody, this, okay. The Monique thing I understand because people still talk about Precious and the performance is still very well respected and discussed. Yeah. The rest of the performances, what is Nine? Oh, it's Cruz. Nine. Have you, have you heard of Nine? Do you know what no. Nine is? Nine is a musical. Uh, oh my that God. Is basically the story uh, kind of of Eight and a Half, the Fellini movie Eight and a Half. It is oh. about an Italian director uh, dealing with the, the, the nine, refers to the nine women in his life uh, uh, that he's... Ha- so, so this Italian director in a musical played by Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, also Christ. starring... This lineup. Yeah, Marion Cotillard, shit. Penelope Cruz, Nic- Nicole Kidman, Judi Dench, Kate Hudson, Sophia Loren. Fergie. And Fergie gives the best performance in this movie, and that's not a joke. Fergie... <laughs> what is like, it is... Okay, you, you should watch Nine just to... Ex- the other thing, with that cast, with that premise, it feels like it would be a lot more fun than it actually is as it's a... It's not fun? There's some fun parts to it, but I don't know. It's it's a weirdly made movie. Um, yeah, I get but, that sense from it. Based on the fact that it has a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. I got that. I got that sense from it. Fergie is really fun. Kate Hudson is really fun. Marion Cotillard is actually pretty good in it for as, as weak as... the As poorly as the movie sells her character, I think she does a good job with it. Penelope Cruz, who ends up getting the nomination, is like actively bad in this movie no Penelope and I feel bad saying that because I love Penelope Cruz but like she is given like a a, I don't even just you have to see it to believe it what what everyone is doing this I'll watch it one day when I maybe I'll get like really drunk and watch it I feel like that could be watch it with friends watch it with friends okay with the group Uh, (laughs) yes um but yeah that's a weird nomination and uh we don't have to dwell on this too much for obvious reasons, but that kind of goes into, that's also a Weinstein Co. movie in this year. Mm. And uh, uh, the Weinstein Co. relationship specifically to this supporting actress race in this year is weird because they have a, a uh, they have this movie, they have Nine, and they have Inglorious Bastards. Okay. And, <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, gotta, I gotta shout out Christoph Waltz. I yes. got it because that is one of my favorite performances of all time. And I I would honestly, even if, which I'm not going to say everything else in this year did go wrong, but I'm so satisfied with that nomination and that win that I'm like, honestly, fuck every category because that performance. Yes. Exactly. Unreal. It's, Sorry, it's, a little sidetrack, but. Oh, you're totally fine. But uh, with this supporting actress race, so they have those movies. Uh, Obviously, like we said, they, they campaign Julianne Moore. It doesn't end up working out. Uh, they campaign Diane Kruger, who ends up getting the SAG nomination. Uh, it doesn't pan out for her. And they, they campaign Penelope Cruz, who ends up getting the nomination. Uh, they also have, from those same two movies, Marion Cotillard in Nine, who's mm-hmm. much better and also a supporting role. And mm-hmm. Diane Kruger, or not Diane Kruger, uh, Melanie Laurent in Inglorious Bastards who, mm. if you're considering Christoph Waltz a supporting role, she's also supporting in the sense that that's an ensemble. You, yeah, the film so, doesn't have a, a true lead. But 
Weinstein was like, I want to get as many nominations as we can, and I don't want the internal competition. So we're going to run Marion Cotillard and Melanie Laurent in lead in a much more competitive category just because he's greedy and he wants to get all those nominations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. it ends up not panning out for anyone except for Penelope as far as the Oscars. Uh, when if they had just put Melanie or Marion in supporting, either of them could have gotten that other nomination pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's just something to point out in terms of uh, what, uh, where the, the attention from Weinstein Co. was. In this. Obviously, Inglorious Bastards gets a lot of nom. It gets like eight nominations. Uh, picture, director, supporting actor it wins, original screenplay, et cetera, et cetera. And nine, there's, he's still able to get like five nominations out of that. So it's not that like the campaigning uh, money. It's not work. like, yes, this movie was not their top priority in this year. So it's under, like, that probably explains a lot of why this ends up not showing up for Julianne, yeah. for screenplay, art direction, yeah. score. The score and art direction categories in this year. And well, actually just all of these are, are weird. Score, uh, Up ends up winning. That's a good win for Michael Giacchino. Avatar, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Hurt Locker, and Sherlock Holmes uh, are, also, are all nominated. That's weird. It's not awful. I think the Up uh, nomination is really good. Fantastic Mr. Fox is really good. But outside of that, those just feel kind of filler. I mean, those are big movies, but I, I don't know if this, this... Well, I don't know. I don't know. This, uh, but just to say, the score for a single man is better than all of those. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Fantastic Mr. Fox is really good. However, I don't know if they're on the... I don't know if they're really comparable. Yeah, they're that's very. Di- they're very, very different. They're doing very different things with uh, what what they are doing in their movies. Uh, art direction, okay. Avatar wins. A lot of that art direction is digital. That's you're not building. That's not plans. you're not directing all that much. If it's yeah. all digital. But yeah, all right. Oh, well. the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus. That uh, uh the Terry that... Gilliam movie that Heath Ledger was making when he died. Uh, which at the very least that's like a big fantasy thing like that makes sense as a we're gonna go for something weird nine which to my memory has really bad sets <laughs> like 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 they're just badly made sets it, it doesn't look good it's not interesting sherlock holmes i guess and the young victoria i guess i i don't know this is it's the we- this movie is in the weird gap of like yes it's a period piece but it's a period piece from a modern enough time that like the the art departments that like their big period pieces aren't going to consider this in the same way as something like the young victoria because it's still modern even if it's at this point like it's a movie set 45 years in the past uh cost okay costume design this year is unwell for the most part. Young Victoria wins. It's more of the same. More of the same uh, period, big, you know, palace intrigue, dresses and stuff. Bright Star, which is actually a good good nomination for a good movie. Coco Before Chanel, the Audrey Tattoo Coco Chanel movie, which 
is what? in there because it's about Coco Chanel and that's about it. Once again, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus and once again, Nine. Like, come on. Just I have never heard of this Coco before Chanel movie. I've only ever heard of it in this very specific context in that it got this costume nomination and that is my only exposure to that movie. Uh, it, by all accounts, it doesn't uh, seem to be all that good, I would imagine. No, no, it does not. That is, that is not the impression that I'm getting. Yeah, yeah, based on, I guess, just sort of everything. Uh, but yeah, just all of those categories, all of those... Oh, and then uh, cinematography. Avatar wins. Makes sense that there's nominations for The Hurt Locker and Inglorious Bastards. The White Ribbon is a cool nomination for that, uh, the Michael Hanukkah movie. Oh, yeah. And the fifth nominee, uh, Bruno Del Bonnell, nominated for Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Oh, man. Very weird, because I don't think any... lineup. Yeah, I don't think any of the other Harry Potter movies had gotten cinematography nominations. Didn't, um... Maybe Goblet of Fire might have, or Prisoner of Azkaban or something. I was going to say Prisoner of Azkaban. Maybe, it might have. I know that got some nominations, but like, it feels weird to just throw a nomination to the sixth movie in the franchise. I don't know. I know because they also changed cinematographers partway through and Del Bonnell is doing something different with the franchise, but still. That movie is okay looking, but it's not... It's some, no... It's not it's some it's big... Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not no a big visual, you know revelation to the franchise it just looks kind of blue and green a lot I, it's and that's not about impressive it. i wouldn't yeah. say um prisoner of azkaban got best visual or was nominated for best visual effects but it didn't it didn't win okay. no it didn't get nominated it didn't get nominated for um best cinematography is what i meant weird weird that that one did the sixth in the franchise and then did any of the others let, let me let me I'm seeing, I'm seeing as though it is the only one. Yes, that it is the was nominated. only Harry Potter movie nominated for cinematography. That's so strange. That's so weird for one out of, uh, out of eight movies. And it's just like midway through the franchise. That's always stood out to me as a, a very odd decision. But yeah, that that gets in over something like this or even other best picture nominees. Uh, like up in the air looks fine or uh, uh, district nine. I could see them going for, or a serious man. Also a gorgeously shot movie. Uh, yes. Which also, I mean, if you want to talk about someone that, that did deserve a best actor nomination, Michael Stuhlbarg and that film is yes, amazing. Uh, but yeah. No, just this is a weird year at the Oscars because everything, this is, like I said, the first year they're expanded back out to 10 Best Picture nominees. So you get stuff like The Blind Side nominated for Best Picture and District 9. That's going to age well. I mean, it's it's not aged well. It it hadn't even aged well in 2009. Uh, Yeah, really didn't. No. Yeah. It's just weird that like, in this year, where they've expanded Best Picture out to 10, ca- uh, 10 nominees, you still have, let's count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven 10, 11 
Acting nominations from films not nominated for Best Picture. That's more than half. Yep. And the, and it's it's just a weird it's a weird way that things play out. Uh, this is not the last time I'll be talking about this year on this podcast because I'll also be doing Julie and Julia and The Lovely Bones, which oh oh boy, I'm gonna be talking about The Lovely Bones on this podcast. That that is gonna be there's so there's so much there's so much I mean there's so much there. but like it's it's not good much. not fun like, no. like we we had so much on this episode we've been talking for more than two hours at this point but we there was so much good stuff to talk about but there's no, this is so like, much this for the is lovely... like three hours worth of garbage that you could talk about God yeah that's 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 one of the movies on this list that I am actively dreading but also actively anticipating because of that dread uh, yeah whenever fair. someone picks that it's gonna be a time it's gonna be a a, a hell of a time anything else uh, about the oscars this year or about this movie at the oscars before we move on to our closing thoughts mm, i don't think so okay so we can uh, we can so. we can move on so Alexa, in your fantasy world where you get to pick all of the nominees, you don't have to worry about campaigning or really anything else. Uh, what nominations would you have given a single man? Hmm. Okay, so first and foremost, I would have given Julianne Moore actress in a supporting role. Um, I think that... So wait, did Tom Ford do the art direction? I don't know who did the art direction. I, I think it, it was... Nonetheless, um, nonetheless, whoever did it, they, they should have been nominated for art direction. Um, cinematography, costume design. I don't know that I'm super passionate about Tom Ford getting a directing nomination. However, looking at the other people that were nominated for this year, I'm like, yeah... Um, Quentin Tarantino, listen, Glorious Bastards is his best, but I still don't know if that justifies a directing nomination. Um, I don't like any of these movies besides Precious. So I feel like, or no, I like Glorious Bastards, but you know, I have, I have big beef with Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. So I don't think he should have been nominated for directing. Um, so even though I'm not like super adamant about Tom Ford um, being deserving of the directing nomination when I see it put up against the rest of them. I'm like, yeah, he, he probably should have. Uh, I think I think that would do it. You know what? Actually, for the sake of going off the logic that I just based my last um, statement on, I also would nominate it for Best Picture because you could easily take out Blindside. You could easily take yeah. out Up in the Air. You could easily take out... I like District 9, but it's not Oscar-worthy. Um, same with an education. All of those could have been replaced by a single man, and I think it would have been a more interesting race, personally. Yeah. I mean, like, out of the Best Picture nominees that I've seen this year, I would rank this movie above all of them except maybe A Serious Man, which is my favorite movie of the year. But, like, this is a close second in, in the year at large. So, like, yeah, yeah. I agree. This is a Best Picture nominee for me, probably a Best Director, uh, Supporting Actress for Julianne Moore, Adapted Screenplay, Art Direction, Costumes, Cinematography. Yeah, 
all of that I think would be entirely deserving nominations, especially yes. like we just mentioned over some of the nominees we actually got, but also just in a vacuum, like this is yeah. a really technically proficient film that yes. uses its aesthetics to enhance the narrative and the inner uh, workings of its main character. Like, yeah, I, I, I think all of those nominations would be, you know, near well, the top of my ballot. Yeah. Yes. I think that'll do it for this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I had a wonderful time talking about this fantastic film with you. Thank you. So did I. I'm glad that I um, got to talk about it. I'm glad that I got to rewatch it or I had an excuse to rewatch it. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have uh, anything you want to plug? Any letterboxed or Twitter or anything where people can find you and your thoughts on Yeah, I'll, I'll plug my letterboxed. Um, I can't guarantee anything too insightful <laughs> or interesting. Um, but uh, my letterboxed is... Oh man, what is my my letterbox username is Dirty Bellbottom. Um, yeah. And if you see if you see a a little profile picture with my face, um, look for a Jewish girl and my name Al, and uh, that'll be me. Uh, if not, you probably typed it wrong. It's a long username, so I understand. Um, uh, yeah, that's the only thing I got going. I don't have anything else to promote. So hell yeah uh you can find this show on twitter and letterboxd at lone acting noms and on instagram at the lone acting nominees that'll be it for this episode thank you for listening